So I am not preaching, but I'm going to introduce Justin, who is one of our pastors. Um, Justin is going to be preaching tonight. We only have uh, one more message in this series. And so all of you have submitted questions, and uh, we've gotten roughly 50 questions from you all. And some sermons have had six of the questions, some sermons have had two, some have had one. Uh, but this is another one of those sermons that we are seeking to answer your questions. And let me say something before Justin says probably the same thing, which is um, if you've been a part of our church for any time, you know that it is very rare that we talk about money. In fact, we don't even take an offering, right? Like if you've been here before, you know, like, hey, where's the offering plate? Well, it's that little box right there. And because you didn't even know about it, that shows like how much we press you for money. So anything in there? Just checking. Okay. So... So you all asked questions on money, okay? So this is a message about money, but I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed to non-Christians or had conversations as a pastor, and I've heard this, the church is only about money. All you guys care about is taking people's money. You know, you're all charlatans. And so in light of that kind of accusation, which isn't true, um, it's political season, everybody's looking for money, right? Uh, Target's looking for your money. Walmart's looking for your money. Twitter's looking for your money. Everybody's looking for your money, right? Starbucks. Some of, some of these places we give freely and willingly. Um, so just you who are regular, you know this is a rarity, okay? But I just want to say for all you new friends, um, we do not talk about money every week. And I don't think we've ever done a whole message on money before. This might be the first one. So that being said, Justin. There we go. It would be nice if we had the, uh, some of you know the OJs. They had a song that was all about money. Just love that bass line to play me up here right now. But we don't have that. That's okay. That is okay. Let me get situated. There we go. Somebody knows it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can we start the clock? I want to be mindful of time because I know we've already had a bit of a preamble. Thank you. Um, as Chris said, today's message is going to be about money, and it's particularly from two questions that we got from the, uh, the submissions for the, the Q&A series. So question number one is, is there such a thing as a New Testament tithe? And then question number two, we know the prosperity gospel is not biblical. How timely. Thank you, Moses and Karen, for giving that setup. So question number two, we know the prosperity gospel is not biblical, but how should we think about wealth as Christians? So let me start off with a story. Um, Rachel and I moved here in 2017, and when we moved here, we were church shopping. So that, it, that meant that I was going online and looking up churches and reading about their website and reading about their belief statements and I remember looking at this one church in particular here in the Pittsburgh area. It had, seemed to have really solid doctrine. I was familiar with the denomination, uh, seemed to have good standing in the community, longtime church. And as I was looking at this church, I was looking at other search results when I looked at their name. And one of those search results was a news article. And it was a news article about this church's pastor who had a Bentley. 
and he drove his Bentley and parked it outside of their church in Larimer. And the local news picked up on it and ran it as a story as local pastor drives Bentley, parks it in Larimer, and it was, you know, as Chris was saying, picked up from the community as like, see, this is the church all about money. And I had to wrestle when I was looking at this church because I agreed with their doctrine, I agreed with their denomination, I agreed with their belief statement, I agreed with a lot of the things that I saw they did in the community, but then I saw that Bentley and I thought, I don't know if I can go to this church. And the question I had to ask myself is, is that just a feeling that I have? Or is there something in the Bible that definitively says in absolute terms that validates my feelings about not wanting to go to church, go to a church where the pastor drove a Bentley? The reason I tell you that story is to hopefully get some common ground is that I think a lot of us feel uncomfortable when it comes to talking about the church and when it comes to talking about Christians and how we use our money. In my experience, there are churches that exist on a spectrum with two ends on it. And one end of the spectrum is these churches where every Sunday we're talking about money. The plate gets passed around, there's a love offering, a free will offering, a goodwill offering, there's a special offering, and they just keep, it's like an appetizer at a restaurant. The plate is just passed around, collected money. There was actually an interview with, uh, so Jamie Foxx, celebrity, famous singer, he grew up singing in the church. And he said when he was singing in churches as a kid, they knew what songs to play in order to get people's emotions going so that they would give more. So that perception about the church being all about money is validated because there are some churches in America, I won't speak globally, but thank you for that too, in America, there are some churches in America that it is about this prosperity, we're all about money, so we're passing the plate, collecting people's money. And then there's the other side of it, and there, I've been in churches like this too, where there's maybe a building fund, and the pastor makes a salary, but you just don't talk about money. In churches like this, if you talk about tithing, they'll say, well, that's, that's the Old Testament, that's the law. We don't believe in the law, and, you know, there's a building fund. We don't know how it's funded. The pastor makes a salary. We don't ask what the pastor makes. It's all kind of unspoken. And I think that's to create a culture of respect. But I've also been in churches like that as well, where it's like, okay, this is getting paid for somehow, but I don't really know how. But we're all here, and there's a building, and there's salaries, but no one really knows what's happening with the money. I wanted to set that foundation because, like I said, I think we all come from churches where our experiences are different in America. And what I want to try to do today is just set a, a scriptural foundation briefly because we don't have as much time as we normally do. And if you have questions about this, this is one where maybe we could do a podcast or I'm open and would love to talk with you about any of the topics we talk about tonight more. But I want to talk about first just scripturally on a foundational level. What does the Bible say about wealth? What does it say about tithing? And then I want to look at a couple areas where Jesus speaks directly to both of those areas and then I'll talk about as a church some overarching practical things that we believe and that we do when it comes to money in light of what Jesus teaches on these topics. So first, let's talk about tithing and then we'll talk about wealth. Tithing. The word comes literally from the word tenth. So if you read the Old Testament, you'll see all types of examples where this principle of giving a tenth or a tithe of what you have to your spiritual authority is a regular practice. This is one example where Abraham, Abram at the time, Abram gives a tenth 
of what he has to the priest, who's the spiritual authority of that day, he gives a tenth of what he has to a man named Melchizedek. And he does that in order to honor the authority that God has placed in his life. Now, what you have to notice about tithing in the Old Testament, Genesis 14, this is our Melchizedek example, the last word there, Abram's giving a tenth of everything. So the concept of applying tithing directly to our modern day is a bit difficult because they weren't just tithing like they had a paycheck and I give 10%. They have herds and uh, agriculture and all types of things that they're giving a tenth out of. You actually see this play out further when you look into the law in places like Deuteronomy where it's your burnt, off, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, and the finest vows that you vow to the Lord. Another example in Chronicles, again, this is that idea of everything. It says, they brought abundantly a tithe of, again, everything. So that's sheep, cattle, your wealth, what you're giving is a tenth of your actual physical possessions because Israel, the people of God, are a nation state and they're giving not just their money but their possessions as well. So it's not quite accurate to just take the Old Testament principle and plop it onto us and say we should do exactly as the church did then. Now, some of you know this first because you come from churches of a certain background. This is the one that everybody goes to when it comes to tithing in the Old Testament. Uh, Micah, Micah 3, 6 through 9. I'll pick up at verse 8. Some of you probably have this memorized by heart. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and in your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the what? Some of you know it. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So in the Old Testament, you have this holistic, regular, spiritual requirement of giving a tenth, giving a tithe. And if you read even more in the verses like Micah, you could say that that might even be tied directly to a spiritual reality. Whereas if you give this tenth, you receive back from the Lord a blessing or an overflow. So it's a principle that some people observe as they read the Old Testament. Now, if you look at the New Testament, there's a broader perspective. So I just want to give an example, and then we'll kind of tie this all together. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. This is the more broad view that a lot of churches have as well. I'll just look at verse 7. Each one of you must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So the two camps and the two extremes that I see in the church today still kind of exist on this paradigm. One, the Old Testament view where tithing is this regular, uh, uh, very literal practice, and the other where it's give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, just do it between you and the Lord. And depending on kind of how you interpret those is depending on how people get to their modern-day view of tithing. And I think Jesus actually reconciles both of those views when he speaks directly to the issue. But before we get to that, I'll talk about wealth, and then we'll get to Jesus talking about both wealth and tithing directly. So let's talk about wealth for a second. Depending on who you look at in the Old Testament, the idea of what it means to be wealthy can vary. So 
The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these are men with large families, large amounts of possessions, what we would consider today to be people who are wealthy. Even Job, who's the example of righteousness in the Old Testament, starts wealthy, loses it all, gets it back after going through some suffering. Now, the misconception, and again, I think this was a timely uh, message to do today, the misconception that some people develop is called prosperity theology, where you have this idea that, well, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were all beloved by God, they obeyed him, they were wealthy, therefore, I myself in 2023, if I obey God, and I follow his word, then I should be wealthy as well. The challenge with that is that is the exact logic that Satan uses. When Satan tempted Job, he used this, this phrase, does Job fear God for no reason? Meaning, if, if Job worships you, God, there should be something attached to that. There should be some prosperity, some money, some material possessions that Job gets when he worships God. And the whole book of Job is to test of that hypothesis, that if I take away all Job's stuff, he'll stop worshiping and he'll find no reason to obey God. And of course, Job, through not at all a perfect example, but many ups and downs, proves himself that he is not attached to his wealth or his possessions and is faithful through the test, but the idea that worshiping God should net us something prosperity or something uh, material is a satanic idea. We did a whole message on this, and so I won't go into it in depth, but prosperity theology, the idea that we get paid or we get material possessions from worshiping God, and if God is pleased with us, we get more. If God is less pleased with us, we get less. That is a lie from Satan. So you have people in the Old Testament, and I think it's important to not just look at the patriarchs, the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, the Josephs, but also look at people in the Old Testament who were on the margins. So Job, even through his trial, is poor for a time. He loses everything. The children of Israel, where God parts the Red Sea, does that amazing story that we all read about in Bible school, they're all coming out of slavery. They're not wealthy. The people of God, when they go into captivity, in that verse we often misquote in Jeremiah 29, 11, when God promises to prosper you and not to harm you, give you hope and a future, he doesn't make them rich after that. They don't get material possessions and nice houses, and they go through a, tr a period of suffering. And the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is not, I'm your God, therefore, when you go into this uh, season of suffering, I'll give you material possessions. It's, your hope is in me. The promise to give you hope in a future is that I will be your God and you will be my people. So whether you're rich or poor in the Old Testament, the hope ultimately of God's people is God himself. I will be your God, you will be my people. And this principle becomes clear if you look at the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6. I think this gives a good example of sort of tying together that rich and poor paradigm that we see in the Old Testament. 1 Timothy says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that, that which is truly life. I think this is a good point to sort of anchor on the question that was asked. How should Christians today think about wealth? Because this verse answers it directly. But another question we have to ask behind that is, who is wealthy? 
Is it just Elon Musk and Bill Gates and people that own companies and have private jets and private islands? I want us to think globally and historically just for a second. So if you were an American citizen in this room, if you make 34,000 US dollars a year, which is a, a decent salary, but if you make 34,000 US dollars a year, globally speaking, you are in the top 1% of earners. You are the 1% the of the 99. So you make more money than 99% of the people in the world if you make 34,000 US dollars a year, which is a decent salary. I say that to say, not to guilt trip anybody, but to say when the Bible talks about the rich, it's not just talking about Elon Musk or Bill Gates. It's talking about a lot of people in America who have resources and expendable time and money and energy that other people around the world don't always have. So again, it's not to say you should feel guilty and you should feel bad about your wealth, but it's just to anchor us in the reality that when the Bible gives exhortations to the rich and the wealthy and encourages them to be wealthy and good deeds, I think it's talking to a lot of people in modern-day America, and not just people who live in Wexford and Fox Chapel and the places we consider to be rich, not just the pastor with the Bentley, but it's talking to a lot of us. So a couple things now as we think about that from 1 Timothy 6. One is the idea of not being haughty. That means that if you've accumulated or have some degree of wealth or sustainability, haughty means don't think that I've earned this myself. That because of my own righteousness, because of my hard work, completely and independently, I've earned this. First Timothy says, don't do that. It also says to not set your hopes on riches which are uncertain. If you watch the stock market or if you invest in the stock market, you know this. If you invested in cryptocurrency, you probably really know this, right? Riches are uncertain. It is up one day and down the next. And whatever you have, you can't take with you after you die. So it's possible for you to be rich in this age and poor in the next. I think a perfect example of that is Jesus when he encounters the rich young ruler. Jesus meets a man who says that he has great wealth and he says, teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells the man, sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man walks away sad because he had great possessions. These are all the examples of what the Bible is warning against when it says, don't let wealth make you haughty. The man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So just like his logic is, just like I earned this wealth, I can earn my righteousness. I can earn my salvation. What must I do to inherit that eternal life? That's a haughtiness or a haughty spirit that's speaking. The man's hopes are also set in his riches or in his wealth because he walks away sad when Jesus says, in order to follow me, you should give all that up. And his hopes were set in his riches, and so he walked away sad. He walked away from the one who could actually give him eternal life because he saw more worth in his money and his possessions. So wealth in and of itself it's not the problem, but it can reveal the symptom of a deeper problem, which could be haughtiness, our dependence on wealth. As we read in Matthew 6, we all have to make a choice. We are worshiping God or we are worshiping money. And when we have wealth and we have to part ways with that wealth and we don't want to, that could be a sign that money or mammon, as the text translates it, money has a deeper hold on our heart. 
So wealth, like I said, is not the problem. There's not necessarily a, 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 an income threshold for you to be a Christian. There were, in fact, a lot of wealthy people that were involved in Jesus's ministry. The Roman centurion, the person who Jesus says had such great faith that he's never seen it in Israel, he wasn't poor. He was doing well. There are many wealthy women who funded Jesus' ministry, who poured spices on him, who paid for his burial. So the idea that you have to be poor to be a Christian isn't accurate. It's what does the money do with you, or what does the money have a hold on you for? Are you able to give it freely for causes that advance the kingdom of God, or when that comes to you, do you feel the need to hold and hoard your wealth? So with that in mind, let's talk now particularly about how Jesus addresses these issues himself in a couple of examples, both wealth and tithing. And I think to get to this conclusion, we have to actually start with a passage where Jesus talks about his view of taxes. Because his view of taxes, I think, tells us his view on uh, wealth and tithing and money broadly, and then we can apply that view to the specific areas of wealth and tithing. So Matthew 22. Jesus is asked by the Pharisees and by their, their disciples, do we have to pay our taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin for the tax. And then they bring him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God." When they heard it, they marveled him. They marveled, and they left him and went away. The reason they were marveled is because they were trying to set him up and trap him. What they were doing was saying, do we have to pay our money to Caesar? That sounds like an innocent question. It's not, which is why Jesus says, you hypocrites, when he answers them. If he says, you don't have to pay your taxes to Caesar, he could be seen as being anti-government and saying that Christians or worshipers in that day could overthrow the government. But if he says, you have to pay your taxes to Caesar, then he could say, well, the government, then it's like he's saying the government has more power than God, and essentially, God is not the authority, the government is. So they're trying to catch him in a trap. And what I like about the way he responds is that his response does not fit either of the outcomes that they were catching, trying to catch him in. So he says, look at the inscription on the coin, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's, but that's not all he says. He also says, pay to God what is God's. So here's the implication. You give Caesar his due because his inscription is on that coin. But whose inscription, whose likeness, whose image is on every person? What's the verse, right? Genesis 1, 27. The image of God is imprinted on all of us. So when he says, pay to God what is God's, He's saying, God, Jesus, me, I'm worth all of your obedience. I'm worth all of your money. I'm worth all of your riches. I'm worth all of your time. And you can't just pay me a cut and move on with your life like you do the government. So what does that mean for Christians in tithing? Jesus actually addresses this in the next chapter. Matthew 23:23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus is saying, you can't treat me like you treat the government. You can't give me 5%, 10%, 1%, 20%, whatever, and just move on with your life and do whatever else you want. 
But notice how he corrects them. He doesn't say, just focus on the weightier matters. Just focus on mercy and justice and faithfulness. He says, you ought to have done that. You should have given your tithe without neglecting the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And right after that, he goes on to warn the Pharisees about not just cleaning the outside of the dish, but making sure that we're clean from the inside as well. So don't just do things to look good. And those things could be giving your money. Don't just give whatever percent you think is required, but be dirty on the inside and not really care about Jesus and be more in love with your wealth than you are with him. Clean up the inside and be cleansed from the inside as well. So what that means for us today as modern believers, if we've trusted in Jesus, we believe that he cleanses us from the inside out, there's no amount of money that will make us right with God. So when it comes to giving, I think this is where Paul's words are relevant for us. God loves a cheerful giver. So if you ask me directly, as a member of Eternal City Church, do I have to give 10% or 11% or 90% or 1%? My response to all those would be, God loves a cheerful giver. So here's directly from our member covenant what we have written on tithing. So every person who's a member of this church signs this agreement, and this is the expectation we have for members. I covenant to regularly give of my time, which means gather with and serve the other church members, as well as serve in various ministries of ECC, my talents, which means use the various gifts that God has given me to serve ECC, and my treasures, cheerfully giving of my income that God has given me to further the advancement of God's kingdom and of God through Eternal City Church. So there's nothing in our member covenant that requires you give 10% of your wealth. We would say that tithing, the idea of it, is a helpful benchmark. It, if you look at the Old Testament principle of giving this percentage and you see Jesus even affirm and say, you should have done this without neglecting the weightier matters, if that was a requirement for the people of God throughout history, it's good to look at that and say, I'd like to try to meet that, and if possible, give more, because I truly trust in the Lord and not in this wealth, and a way to regularly dethrone the, idol the idolatry of wealth in your heart is just to give your money away. That's what Jesus challenged the rich young ruler to do. So tithing is a helpful benchmark, but it's not a requirement. So let me say two things practically for us as a church, and then we'll, we'll close and, and have family dinner together. Number one, and this was hinted at in the beginning, and I didn't run this by Chris, but I think it's good because we agree on this. As a church, we don't want your money. You can't pay off Jesus like you pay your taxes, like I'm going to pay whatever is required and then I'm good. This box up here, you can give money to it. I was joking before church, like we don't pass it around. But if you want to give money, you can put your money in the box. You can give online. You can give directly to one of the elders. And we appreciate that. You, we, we are grateful for the gifts and the, and the sacrificial giving that you all model because it allows us to do things like what you saw before this, to send ministry, uh, people over to Uganda to fund things and kingdom ministries that are going on in other countries. But we don't want your money. This box up here, like I said, is just something that is there for you to give and I don't really care how much you put in there. Because each of us, as, at a baseline, is required to give the same thing to Jesus. That's everything. So whatever amount you put in there is something that we want you to grow in. Tithing can be a helpful benchmark towards that. But we want you to give your life to Jesus and then joyfully 
give your wealth to the church. We owe Jesus everything, and our only guidance for members, like I said, is tithing is a helpful benchmark, but ultimately, God loves a cheerful giver, and we owe Jesus everything, our mind, our body, our emotions, our time, our wealth, our reputation, we give it all to him. So if I wanted you to put anything in the box, put your whole body in there. Like, we're giving him everything. We want to put our entire being and say, Lord, use me as you will. And then from that place, give cheerfully. I've been in membership meetings. So we do, when we have people join the church, we do a meeting with them to talk through the member covenant. And one of the things that was asked, I think this has come up multiple times, is people have said to us, you know, hey, I, I, I see what you have here on giving and I give to a missionary from my old church, and I want to continue to do that. I'm going to give some to your church, but is it okay if I give, up some, give some of what I've decided to this missionary and give some of what I've decided to ECC? And Eddie said, absolutely not. You have to give it all to the church. <laughs> he said, yeah. We said, no, no, like absolutely. If you see other things and you're giving your money in other places that you feel advance the, king, advance the kingdom of God and they're not going directly to Eternal City Church, but you feel that that's where the Lord has called you to give, we support that. We want you to be able to do that. We are not in competition with other ministries or with other believers for where your money goes. Giving your life to Jesus for us is more important than you giving your money to us as a church. And like I said, we're not in competition with other ministries, other things that you feel you want to give your money to. We do appreciate giving. I'm not making this like wishy-washy, like do whatever you want. Like we have a budget. We have, uh, you know, goals that we want to hit financially. We have rent to pay. But ultimately, we want to make sure that your money does not have a hold on you. And it's good to be able to give it away on a regular basis frequently to a church or to a ministry to ensure it doesn't do that. But as I said, we want you to give yourself to Jesus first and then cheerfully give your money as you feel that he's calling you. Second thing, and I'm saying this as, as again, another overarching statement that we didn't agree on, but I'm saying it now anyway. Um, the accountability goes both ways. So we want you to give cheerfully to the Lord, but also as a church, our books are open to anybody who wants to see them. I know Peter said this at multiple membership meetings. No one's taken him up on it, but I do want to emphasize it. We can show you the budget, and we want to show you where all the money goes. So there is no secret building fund or uh, line item on the budget for someone's Bentley that no one knows about. You can see dime by dime, dollar by dollar, where it goes. Because like I said, the accountability should go both ways. We want you to be able to give joyfully to the church, but we also want you to be able to see where exactly that money goes. So if you have any questions, want to know anything about what our budget looks like this year versus last year, line item by line item, where things go, we will do that with you. I'm saying we, but I'm really meaning Pete, because Pete runs the budget. But he's offered to do that in meetings, and we do that on a regular basis. Part of our elder meeting is reviewing the budget and seeing where all the money's allocated to go and making sure we all agree with that. If you're a member, we offer that same level of transparency and accountability to you as well. So, all this is possible because God loves a cheerful giver. And the best example of cheerful giving was Jesus on the cross. He gave it all for us. And he didn't just tithe his blood. Like, let me just do the minimum required and then move on with my life. He gave it all. He gave it all so that we could truly be clean from the inside out, that we could love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in response to that, we could give cheerfully. 
God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus is the best example of cheerful giving, and it's his blood that reconciles us with God, covers all of our sin, our guilt, our greed, our fear, because that's where money oftentimes is an idol because it makes us less afraid. Jesus' blood reconciles us with God, allows us to walk in the newness of life that Christ offers, and allows us to give freely to those in need, and to give freely to our local church as well. So remember, as we close, God loves a cheerful giver. Remember Jesus, the best example of giving, and remember his sacrifice that has truly paid the price that none of our money could pay, that makes us right with God, that reconciles us to a relationship with him, with one another, so that we can live by the power of the Holy Spirit and give freely. I'll pray. We're going to sing a worship song, and uh, we're also going to close and have a meal. So pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are the best example of giving, that Jesus gave it all, that he gave it willingly, joyfully, that he didn't hold back, and that we are extravagantly loved by you as displayed by his sacrifice on the cross. Help us to remember that as we um, give our whole lives to you, our time, our money, our, our um, intelligence, our reputation, our wealth, Help us to give it all to you, and with wisdom and with discernment, and as your word says, uh, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but live lives that joyfully give back to you and to your kingdom and advance your purposes in the earth. Help us to, with wisdom, decide how to allocate and use our money wisely, not just in what we give, but in also what we spend on so that we can live lives that are reflective of the hope that we have in you. Remind us of that. Help us to remember Jesus as we share and fellowship with each other. It's in his name we pray. Amen.